0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up against indifference. Say hello to a stranger. It starts with you. LeadSA.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby.
1: I'll tell you what, lots of SMSs came in after Eugene's call. Eugene was talking about uh, the response from Kunene and started a whole lot of debate about money, what you should do with it, what you shouldn't, what the responsibility of rich people uh, is. I'm going to print these SMSs and I'll read them after 10 o'clock. But right now, let's say hi to Chris. Hi
2: there. Good morning. How are you today? Yes, very good, thank you. Lovely. Eager to get going.
1: Eager to get going. I'm also No, no, sir. I'm
2: eager to get going. I'm looking forward to what, what roundup we may have. Because the questions last week were so fantastic. There, there were, there were. I remember those, I remember those. And, of course, we are taking
1: your calls uh, on 021-446-0567, 702 Let's start with this story, Chris. Pancreatic cancer takes 10 years to spread?
2: Yeah, well, pancreatic cancer has universally been acknowledged to have a really grim prognosis. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if you're diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, then the likelihood is, the doctor will say to you, the likely five-year survival, in other words, the chances of a person with it being alive five years later, is between five and ten percent, which is appalling. So you'd think you don't want to get diagnosed with that. Mm. But what wasn't known is how long it takes the cancer to actually develop itself in the first place. In other words, is there a long lead time, and can we intervene at that time? And there's a really fascinating paper which has been published in the journal Nature this week. It's by Christine Yacobuzio-Donoghue, who's a researcher at the Johns Hopkins Medical Institution in America. Mm -hmm. And what she and her colleagues have done is to get pancreatic cancer victims. So they've got seven patients who died of pancreatic cancer, and they were able to do what are called rapid autopsy examinations on those patients. So the patients were very quickly examined after they died, And samples of the original pancreatic tumor, as well as the metastases where the cancer had spread around the body, were examined by. The doctors. And what they were able to do is to build a genetic evolutionary tree for the tumours. In other words, they could divide the primary cancer up into lots of little slices and look at the individual genes that had changed because cancer is a genetic disease and cells start to behave abnormally when their genes go wrong. So you could look and trace where in the primary tumour you had genetic damage and then you could see which bits of the primary tumour had spawned, spread to different parts of the body, and you could see which genes had changed to make that spread happen, and therefore you could see when bits of the cancer had spread in evolutionary genetic terms, Mm. and at what point. And because we can work out how fast genes change or get damaged in this way you can work out something called a genetic clock which tells you how quickly this damage is being accrued and when they put all these numbers together they come up with a very interesting conclusion which is that it took at least 11 to 12 years for the primary cancer to occur in the first place. Then a further almost seven years for the primary cancer to change genetically again so that it could begin to spread around the body. But then once it had spread, only two to three years before the person unfortunately dies. Mm. So what this tells you is that there's a very long lead time of almost 20 years before a person dies when their cancer is actually getting started. Um, but which uh, during which time it probably hasn't spread in a fatal way. And therefore, during that first 10 to 12 years, if you could pick up these tumours by scans or other detection markers, you could intervene in these people and quite probably save their life and turn that 5% survival into more than 95% mm. survival. Obviously, it's tricky to detect cancers very early, but now they know there is this very long lead time this says that a it should be more possible than we thought before and b it says that we now need to start looking for various markers in the bloodstream that can signal up when someone might be developing a cancer so that we can go hunting in people who might be vulnerable
1: mm, mm, mm. so obviously we keep saying with cancer early detection and early intervention could dramatically improve someone's life so there you are uh, chris here's what i'm very fascinated about a study that informs our understanding of how the brain allocates attention to different stimuli tell me about that?
2: Well, one of the big outstanding questions of neuroscience is that given this barrage of sensory information that we face second by second every minute of our lives, is how does the brain decide what to pay attention to at any given moment? So in other words, here I am, I'm sitting down, I'm wearing clothes, I'm in a room at a certain temperature, uh, my hands are touching a desk, my bum is sitting on a seat, but I'm paying attention to a computer screen and a microphone, and what you're saying to me, and what I'm saying. I'm zoning out all the other sensory information. How does the brain decide, out of all of this information, that's what I'm going to focus on? At the same time, how does the brain actually store information? So there are several questions there. And A group of researchers, um, again in America, this is Moran Surf and his colleagues uh, who are at Caltech over in the States, they've got a paper also in the Journal Nature this week, and they have taken advantage of the fact that a number of patients were going to a hospital in California mm-hmm. to have brain recordings made because they had epilepsy. And in some very serious cases of epilepsy, the only way to intervene in the disorder is to try to find out which bit of the brain is firing off abnormal nerve impulses and then to zoom in or home in on that part of the brain and remove it. But before you can do that, you need to trace very carefully using electrodes implanted into the brain where the abnormal behaviour is coming from. So this group of scientists teamed up with the doctors who were doing their epilepsy study and they connected their computer to 64 different brain electrodes that had been implanted into 12 different epileptic patients over a period of days so that they could begin to do some tests on the patients. And what they did was to show the patients a whole batch of pictures while simultaneously recording from these brain electrodes in their medial temporal lobe, close to the memory area of the brain. And what they found as they showed them these pictures is that some of the electrodes that were recording from just very small clusters of nerve cells only fired off when the patients looked at certain pictures. In other words, there might be a picture popping up of Bill Clinton or a banana or I nearly said Monica Lewinsky then, but I don't think she was included in the study, but let's say (laughs) Marilyn Monroe, who definitely was, um, what they saw was that certain neurons fired up when they saw those pictures. So they knew that those nerve cells that those electrodes were recording from had an interest in Bill Clinton or Marilyn Monroe or a banana or a picture of Big Ben in London. Mm -hmm. Then what they did is to ask the patients to look at a computer screen on which they had presented two pictures that they knew they had these nerve cells interested in but the two pictures were superimposed what i mean by that is i don't know if you've seen computer graphics where you can make two pictures grayed out so that they're semi-transparent and you can overlay them so you can see one picture through the other and they asked the patients right by thinking along the right lines by focusing on one of the pictures you can make it the other one fade away So, in other words, it makes one of them that you're concentrating on become more opaque and the other one more transparent, so it disappears. And what they found is that 69% of the time in this first trial, the patients, just by thinking along the right lines, thinking of Bill Clinton or thinking of Marilyn Monroe, the thought uh, what you could do is to in the first case what you could do is to make that opaque picture become mm. much stronger and the other one disappear so that means you can then ask the question in other words they're paying attention to one stimulus and suppressing another how are they doing that and what they found what they found is that the nerve cells that correspond to the noise in other words the distraction the thing they don't want to pay attention to their activity drops. And the activity in the nerve cells that are paying attention to the thing you want to focus on, they stay the same. So the way in which the brain focuses its attention is by zoning out on the distracting stimuli Mm -hmm. by... Down-regulating or downplaying the activity neurologically corresponding to those things, and keeping strong the nerve activity of the things that you do want to focus on. Mm. So fascinating study. It's in okay. Nature this week, and uh, have a look online if you, if you want to see the the pictures and things. Mm.
1: Oh two one four four six oh five six seven oh double one double eight three oh seven oh two. I'd love to take your calls. Let's start with start with you, Zagani in Brooklyn. Hi. Hi, hi guys. How are you this morning? We're great. Thanks. What's your question? Um. Before I ask my question, I have to put a disclaimer. I do use roll-on, but I want to find out I'm a social runner. And I find that the sweat after running is so bad that even if I were to want to repeat maybe the shorts at the top, I can't because the clothes would be smelling so badly. I've called it the, the runner sweat because everybody smells the same. And it's just so bad compared to sweat from the gym. Why okay. is that? So, so uh, normal sweat, as it were, if there is something like yeah. that, smells better normal than sweat from running. Yes, after okay. running, the sweat is very bad.
2: <laughs> Chris- Hello, Sagani. um Yeah, um, stay at your end of the line. No, just joking. Um, <laughs> the, the reason we whiff uh, is because of sweat, you're right, but it's actually also due to your closest friends, who are your skin bacteria. So every single person in the world has more bacteria living on them and inside them than they do actually have cells in the rest of their body. So bacteria outnumber us as individuals 50 to 1. There are at least 50 times more bacteria living on us and in us than there are cells in our entire bodies. And those bacteria whilst they do contribute a smelliness in certain circumstances, actually do a very good job for us because they take up space on the skin, they stop the bad guys gaining root, and they also may produce certain substances that in certain circumstances can help us because they secrete chemicals that we can absorb and use from the intestine, for example. But on certain parts of the body that get very sweaty, you've not just got sweat coming out, you've also got skin falling off because every moment by moment the body is losing thousands of dead skin cells i think the statistic is that every second or every minute you lose about forty thousand dead skin cells they just fall off you so wherever you've got folds of skin you're going to have flakes of skin detaching that skin is going to have proteins in it and so when you've got salts and water dead skin Mm. and bacteria and warmth you've got a bacterial banquet going on so those bacteria will flourish and when they eat the skin they degrade the proteins and use them to grow more bacteria and the waste products of those bacteria are whiffy and it's Mm. the same reason that the waste products a human makes are whiffy because they're full of bacteria and the bacteria make various volatile chemicals i can only think that the running you're doing is making the smelliness a little bit worse because you're probably doing slightly more intense exercise in slightly warmer environments. So when you go running, the environment isn't air-conditioned, so you're probably getting a bit hotter, which is probably making you sweat a bit harder, and therefore you're making your bacteria flourish a little bit more. And when we put roll-on on, on, what that actually does, if it's antiperspirant, Mm. it's got an aluminium zirconium chemical in the roll-on, this... Uh, is dry, and when it mixes with water, it forms a gel, and the gel plugs up the sweat glands and stops the sweat coming out, so it reduces the level of sweating. It's also combined with something that smells nice, so that even if you do make some smells in your armpit area, then it still smells pleasant, um, because it masks the other odours. So that would be my guess. It's your bacteria, and it's probably because the exercise when you go running rather than the gym, because the gym is air-conditioned, is slightly more intense, so you sweat more, so you make more bacterial buggy smells.
1: Moral well, of the story Zagani, keep running. Okay. <laughs> keep running. Let's go to uh, Christy in Belleville. Hi. Hi, morning, Ready. Morning, mm, Chris. Mm, welcome. Uh, my question is uh, I always wondered how a piece of grass has been able to grow through concrete. It's able to grow through
2: concrete. Concrete. Oh, yeah. yes. I've seen that as well. Uh, Chris? Hello, Christy. The answer is plants are incredibly resourceful and resilient, and when a tiny seed lands somewhere and there is some soil for it to take root in, then it just extends roots in any direction it can in order to find a source of water and minerals that it needs in order to grow. And as long as it can find enough water to sustain the losses from the plant, because plants have to lose water to grow, that's called transpiration, then the plants can grow anywhere. They are pretty amazing. So water and a supply supply of nutrients, in other words minerals, that the plant needs and then it's happy. So wherever a seed lands and there's sufficient soil for it to get get a root in, then it will grow. If you're asking how does concrete get cracked open by plant roots the answer is that's down to just the pressure of growth and it's a bit like a crowbar phenomenon you'll see a tree for instance might take roots in a block of stone and the roots eventually grow through the stone and, and break them open what's happened there is that the roots have grown through tiny cracks in the stone where there is soil and moisture and as the roots have got bigger and bigger and bigger they've exerted a bigger and bigger force rather like jacking up a car and eventually the stone just fails and it splits a bit more and then the root goes through
1: Okay, thank you very much, Christy. Chris in Santon, hi. Morning, Christy. Mm. Morning, Chris. Uh, I'm, uh, I need to know the Indian minor birds. Does, do they carry pests that are harmful to humans, and uh, how harmful are they?
2: Okay. Thank Indian you. I'll minor birds. Thanks, Really, Can you just summarise the question for me? Because I the, asks, the Indian
1: minor weak. birds. I don't know what birds are those. Do they carry pests uh, that can affect human?
2: I'm not aware of any. Some birds, um, parakeets and pigeons, can carry chlamydia, and that's not of the genital variety, it's the one that's transmitted oh, a, a respiratory infection, chlamydia cytokise, and it gives you a human infection called cytokosis. I'm not aware of whether minor birds can also carry that, I'd have to check. Um, so I'm not sure that minor birds carry anything that's dramatically bad for humans, um, apart from the obvious, so um, I don't think so, but I'll have to check for you, Chris.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Chris. Uh, You'll wait for your answer next week. Madala in Pimville, hi. Hi, Ribi. Mm. I would like to know why human beings are required by everybody else to eat uh, vegetables, fruits and minerals and vitamins and all those things, but animals can live on grass or meat alone. So there's more variety uh, for us as humans. humans, Why do we need that as opposed to animals? Mm, Very interesting question.
2: Chris, any thoughts on on that? Hello, Madala. Um, Yes, a very good question, actually, because um, I can give you an example using scurvy as the answer, because if you wind the clock back a few hundred years when people were sailing around the Earth, one of the dread diseases of being on board a boat was when your skin started to get very sore and peely and your teeth started to fall out, your gums would bleed, and people felt absolutely dreadful. And it was only when a pioneering doctor-cum-experimenter aboard one of Nelson's boats started giving his uh, crew members lemons to eat in an experiment that the scurvy suddenly disappeared. And originally people thought it was acid that that was the cure and it wasn't much later until people realised that lemons have vitamin C. But the actual reason why lemons cure scurvy and scurvy occurs through a deficiency of vitamin C because people don't eat enough fruit and vegetables when they're on long sailing journeys in the old days is because the human body cannot manufacture vitamin C, and there were a group of scientists in the in the last 100 years who were fascinated by this and started doing some studies. And they were looking at guinea pigs, and it's a good job they chose guinea pigs because, apart from humans and chimps, you know, prim- big primates. Um, guinea pigs are the only other mammal that can't make vitamin c and so they chose guinea pigs to study in their scurvy studies um by, by sh- sheer good luck but they did discover what scurvy is in other words there are certain things that we cannot make which are absolutely critical to our health and well-being and the likelihood is that because humans are pretty resourceful and we had a very omnivorous a very broad diet, we probably were able to get enough of these micronutrients from our diet that we lost the ability in evolutionary terms to make them. Um, and that means that if you then put yourself into a monotonous diet again where you're relying on just one food stuff that mm. may be very deficient in some of these chemicals you may run out of them, especially the water soluble vitamins like the B vitamins and vitamin C. Because they dissolve in water they're very hard to store in the body and therefore you need a constant supply of them and that's why you become water vitamin deficient first rather than fat Soluble vitamin deficient. All
1: right, uh, Chris, I want to ask you about this. Uh, tell us about the outcome of this uh, study of 166 sun like stars with 80 light years of
2: Earth. We are clearly not alone. Well, one of the big outstanding questions is how many other solar systems or stars systems which have planets around them have planets like the Earth or how many are likely to be out there and have we got our model of how systems like our own put themselves together? And to answer those questions there are two wonderful astronomers who are at the University of California, Berkeley in America, uh, Andrew Howard and Jeff Marcy and they have got a paper in the journal Science this week where they've undertaken a huge study of the night sky. They've looked at 166 Um, stars a bit like our own sun. So, in other words, they're pretty similar to the star star that we look at, the sun. Mm. And they have used something called the wobble method to look for planets around those 166 stars over the last five years. Now, what the wobble method is, is it relies on the fact that if there is a planet going around a star, the gravitational pull of the planet on the star will make the star move towards the planet a little tiny bit and that means that the light coming from that star will be pulled away or towards us a little bit when the planet is in that configuration because if you imagine the light waves coming away from the star towards us when the planet goes around the back of the star relative to us if it pulls the star away from us a little bit, then the light coming from the star will be transiently stretched out a little bit, so-called red-shifted. When the planet is in the opposite side, coming towards us, the star will be pulled towards us a tiny bit and this will blue-shift the light. And seeing this winking on and off of the, the light waves in this way, stretching and shortening, can tell scientists whether there's a planet there. It can tell the scientists how close to the star the planet is and how much it must weigh. So you can tell an enormous amount just by watching the wobble of distant stars in the night sky. And using this technique, these two astronomers have done this very comprehensive sky survey using the Keck telescope in Hawaii. And what they find is really surprising. They find that there are far fewer big planets like Jupiter and Neptune than we thought there would be. Mm. And there are far more small, rocky planets earth-sized planets than there ought to be. In fact, when they extrapolate on their graph, they find that perhaps one star, like our sun, in four may have planets between half the size and twice the size of the earth going around them, which is a staggering discovery because we thought our system was a lot rarer or a lot more unusual than that. This suggests that it's much more common than we first thought. It also throws a bit of a spanner in the works because it doesn't really fit with what our model, our understanding of how systems put themselves together actually works, So we've, we've actually got our modelling slightly wrong. The numbers these, obser- these astronomers have observed of these planets are far higher than we would have predicted, suggesting we need to tinker with our models of how systems put themselves together in order to understand uh, actually a bit better how they work.
1: Mm, mm, mm. Uh, Chris, before I let you go, I have a very, very important question. There's an email that came through and it's been coming, I get it every single week. I've been getting it for over a year now. Somebody wants to know, what does Chris Smith do to relax?
2: Um, actually, I love South African red wine. Um, big, You've big said reds. that before. <laughs> so I, I like to uh, sit down by my log burner in winter obviously not in summer uh, and a really good big red nice south african shiraz oh yeah i can i can relax with some of that i can tell you
1: oh that's wonderful so i hope i've answered your question simon stop sending me those emails <laughs>
2: thanks chris we'll chat to you next week it's a pleasure thank you simon and well done on your persistence
0: <laughs> thinking about your next career move in research and development